Hello, have you ever wondered if you are nothing but an NPC in a massive computer game? We have been wondering the same thing. What if there is a massive cover-up to hide the fact that our universe is just an enormous sandbox-style software program? If only there was a podcast that could look into questions, like, that, one. This is only a test. This is only a test. In your voluntary cooperation. This station is conducting a test for the emergency broadcasting system. This is only a test. This is only a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. Joining me today, as always, is your co-host with the co-most, Nathan Radke. Hi, Nathan. Um, are we sure? Are we sure that I'm joining you? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, like last time, this is exactly what we are trying to figure out is, uh, oh, I should introduce myself. I'm the other co-host. I'm Lee. Hi, everyone. And um, Nailed it. <laughs> but am I really here? Are you really here? What the heck is really going on? Are we just living a computer simulation? Nathan, what's reality? It's been a rough week. It has been. Right. So here's the problem, because we're not sure if we're joining each other today. And it's even worse than that, since I'm not even sure if I'm joining myself here today. Since, as we'll talk about in this episode, there is the possibility that the entire universe might just be a computer simulation, in which case there is no here in which for me to join myself. Right. This is, we are just living the matrix. Yeah. I mean, it's so handy that we have that movie because yeah. it's a cultural touchstone we can just sort of reference. We're, we're, we're matrixing today. So it might sound like a bizarre and ridiculous claim, even by our standards. <laughs> that, that's saying something. <laughs> it, I mean, because, I mean, look at what we've talked about over the years, conspiracies about assassinations and missing planes and cryptids and mad scientific experiments. And stuff living in the basement of Denver Airport. Stuff in the basement of Denver Airport. Like, we've gotten into some weird stuff. But this hypothesis claims that the entire universe is nothing more than a massive cover-up operation, hiding the fact that none of it is real, and it's all part of some computer program running somewhere out in the real universe, which we, as residents of the simulated universe, can never get to any more than the NPCs you play against in your own video games could leave your computer and seek vengeance against you. This is even worse than I just put it with the Matrix example, because at least in the Matrix, there is a body you could theoretically return to. Yeah. Uh, Most people don't because they live this illusory world thinking it's the real one. But you're suggesting there's another version of this conspiracy, which is even more radical, which is that whatever the really real is out there, we can't get there because they created us in some kind of computer simulation world and we are like conscious programs running around fulfilling our programming exactly there isn't even any way for us to get out you're a you're a bit of a computer gamer not not a huge one by today's standards but certainly not a good one Mm -hmm. um it is the i i you know like the peak for me are the mario games i have to admit like the whole mario world yeah exactly my son and i love those games we play it all the time anything more complicated than that i struggle with but i have tried my hand at grand theft auto and other 
kind of big sandbox simulation games where you kind of like explore a world. I have done, I have tried a little bit of that. Okay, that's going to come in handy because basically this argument is that we are living in one of those sandbox games. A sandbox game with a sandbox the size of the known universe. Okay. So you've played a lot of Super Mario. What are the bad guys that you jump on called? Goombas. Goombas. I mean, there are different types of bad guys, right. but Goombas are the, the kind main of... main one? Yeah. How many Goombas have you stepped on over the years? Thousands, tens of thousands, a lot. And how much did you care about those Goombas you stepped on? I felt good. I mean, I, I, I cared in as much as I felt good landing and killing them. And what if those Goombas had consciousness and thought that they were in their real world? That would change the Super Mario game into some kind of horrendous nightmare. Yeah, you'd you'd be a monster. You'd, you'd be a, like Mario would be the ultimate psycho killer. Yeah, it really changes the flavor. Yeah. So this all sounds ridiculous, but the simulation hypothesis has penetrated fairly deeply into our pop culture and the zeitgeist. We've got uh, like influential figures like Elon Musk, and they claim to believe in the idea. TikTok influencers have produced thousands of hours of alleged evidence pointing out glitches in the matrix right. uh, that betray the fact that our world isn't really real. And in a previous episode, we've talked about the rich philosophical heritage of serious thinkers considering this possibility, obviously not as a video game because they wouldn't have been familiar with video games. The video game is the secularized version of a concern and a question that has been dogging humanity certainly since we have written records. We looked last time uh, that we talked at the Gnostics. We looked at Plato and uh, the allegory of the cave. We looked at Descartes. We briefly mentioned various religious traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism. I started, in fact, and I never gave credit to Chuangzi and the Taoists. That was that butterfly. You know, is Chuangzi dreaming he's a butterfly or is it a butterfly dreaming he's Chuangzi? So those were the Taoists who at least, they didn't develop a whole worldview like this, but they did toy with the question of how do you know what really real is? What the audience didn't know is that before we went on air, we, we both really kind of had to pare down our hugely long lists of all the traditions and thinkers who've looked at this and, and taken it quite seriously. So the old version was it's a demon, it's God, it's an evil God, it's a devil figure that casts a cloud of illusion over us. Maybe even in the case of the Gnostics actually develops a, like a, a fraudulent universe of which we are a part. Yeah, and so there's a rich sort of tradition of us worrying about whether we are in fact in the real world or in some fake knockoff. Yeah, and this is just the most recent version of it. And because yeah. we live in a computer age, and because people are so familiar with the idea of the video game, it makes sense that the model that we look to is, hey, what if we're in a video game? Yeah, I think exactly. It works like a metaphor because with Chuangzi, it was a dream. And that's a very ready-to-hand experience that we all have of an alternate reality that, while you're in it, seems very real. And then today, we have, you know, immersive video games. But even beyond that, I've started trying out uh, VR. A friend of mine has a VR uh, video game system. I have to admit, it makes me terribly nauseous. Like I, I've heard I, that's common. I can't, I can't stay in there very long. But we have, I think that is like our go-to metaphor for talking about experiences of things that are not really real, but kind of approach it. Although that raises the question, do you ever get nauseous out here in what we think of as the real world? I do as well. but Perhaps not Perhaps evidence that you're in a VR world. Though. Right, but not nearly as quickly. 
Uh, the VR stuff, it's like two minutes later. I'm not feeling well. So let's get into it. Uh, we're going to have to look at a pretty weird argument. But before we get to the weird argument, let's look at an argument that is so obvious that people never even really talk about it. The evidence that we exist in a real world. We'll call this the reality hypothesis. <laughs> it's almost a radical position, given how skeptical uh, the traditions that we've looked at have been about reality. Like their starting point is, no, no, this can't be real. So that is an interesting thought to actually flip that question on its head and say, wait, what if it is real? Yeah, what, what do we do live in a real world? Okay. So this is a claim that physical matter underpins our experiences. Our existence isn't dependent on any kind of outside system of hardware and software running a simulation. Basically, that we are in a reassuringly conventional and mainstream uh, existence where this is the real place and it's the realest place there is. Okay. That we are in the physical, real world. Um, let me just ask you a little bit about that. Now, that doesn't preclude the fact that we could be mistaken about what the real world looks like or that there is parts of the real world that remain hidden to us. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean... We have certain senses and we sort of construct a worldview through those senses. But a bee would see flowers in a different way than we would see flowers. A mantis shrimp sees more colors than we see. You see more colors than I see. I'm colorblind. That's right. So we can say we're in the material real world without saying that we have direct access to it. Okay. But just that we are in it even if we don't exactly know everything about it. Okay. On the face of it, a relatively reasonable starting point. Yeah, but we should still look at the evidence. Okay. So here's some evidence supporting the reality hypothesis. We appear to live in a universe that came into being about 14 billion years ago. It stretches in at least trillions of light years in every direction. It's expanding and it's composed of maybe 200 billion galaxies, each having about 100 billion stars. Okay. That's the argument. We're in that world. Now, the sheer size of that is hard to deal with. Oh, uh, it's it's impossible for me to get a grasp of even fractions of those kinds of numbers. And I'm often reminded there's a, a bit in a, a Douglas Adams novel, one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the... Restaurant at the End of the Universe, I Is believe. it that one where, mm -hmm. where you actually get to experience briefly the enormity of the universe, and those who do are driven insane. Yeah, it's a punishment, I believe, isn't yeah. it? It's like a kind of, like, you, you commit a crime, so they put you into this device that shows you how big the universe is and how tiny you are, and inevitably everybody goes mad. Yeah, except yeah. except a megalomaniac, which was a kind of a funny joke in there. But, uh, Those books were so good. So the sheer size of the universe makes the idea that the entire thing is just an elaborate simulation seem much less likely. I mean, we have simulated worlds here that we've made, one of the largest uh, is Minecraft. Right. My son is a huge fan of Minecraft. Yeah. And do you know how big the Minecraft simulated world is? Well, so for those of you who don't play, haven't played, don't have kids who play, you can build a world in Minecraft and it's accessible to other people. Yeah. So, so you could go to someone else's world. So imagine all the players who've built worlds and they're out there and you can just visit them. Uh, so, and, and if you assume like a Minecraft char character is like the size of a human, right. how big is the Minecraft universe that we've made? Okay, so I have no idea. How big is it? Compared to the size of the Earth, take a guess. 
I mean, like what the, percentage the of the earth have we made in Minecraft? The fact that you're already at that scale is pretty shocking. Um, I don't know. I, I let's say a quarter of the size of the earth. That would be an amazing achievement. Okay. It's is it five times larger than the earth. Whoa. The Minecraft universe See, in I 2022. I thought I screwed up the example by going too big. Oh no! You you gotta you gotta five go even bigger. Five times the size of the Earth exists. Five times the size of the Earth. Wow! That's extraordinary. So you could just spend your entire life wandering around Minecraft worlds, and just never come to the end of it. That sounds extremely impressive to us, since from our perspective, Earth is really big. Yep. But this goes back to what we were just talking about. Compared to just even our own galaxy, Earth is so small as to be unnoticeable. And compared to the known universe, Earth is so small, it's basically nothing. Yeah. So five times nothing. Still nothing. It's still nothing. The computing power that it would take to run a simulation the size of our universe would be, like, literally astronomical. Okay. And I say literally astronomical because I think you would literally require harnessing the entire energy of star systems in order to run it. Okay. Assuming stuff that we don't have any evidence for that uh, they're working roughly whoever they are with technology that you know we can at least comprehend and imagine so they haven't figured out some perpetual motion machine or whatever. right I mean and of course those are always possible when we're dealing with things as speculative right there's another strong bit of evidence that we live in the real world and not a simulation and that is the undeniable fact that you dear listener and you dear Lee are experiencing this universe right now. Okay. So you have self-awareness. When it rains, you feel wet. Mm -hmm. When it's windy, you feel mildly inconvenienced and annoyed. And what do we call the experience of being mildly inconvenienced and annoyed? We call it consciousness. Right. I was going to say. And doesn't this bring us back to where we ended, essentially, the last time we recorded, which was Descartes' sense of, well, no, you know, there's a lot that we can't know for sure, but there is something which is my own direct experience of my consciousness is at least clear to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it is true that from my perspective, I don't know 100% whether Nathan is conscious in the way that I am, or maybe faking it in some kind of simulation. But I am as positive as I can be about anything that I am not faking my own consciousness to myself. Yeah, and then we use something called folk psychology, which is where we say, okay, I'm aware of my consciousness, and I'm aware of how I act. So if I see another human being acting in a certain way that reminds me of what I do, then I assume that they are also conscious like I'm conscious. Folk psychology or just empathy, no? Yeah, well, like, I mean, folk psychology is more the epistemological, like, underpinning of the idea that we aren't just solipsistic and the only things that exist in the world. Right. A solipsism, of course, is the philosophy that you because you only know your own mind, you only have evidence of your own mind, you assume that you are the only mind. Right. And the problem with that comes in a funny little, probably apocryphal joke, which um, was probably never said by a graduate student to her professor, solipsism is such a great philosophy, everyone should try it. Now, the thing I like about that joke is that you, first, before you told it, you wanted to assure everyone, it's like, we don't have evidence this joke was actually told in real life. Right. 
That's, that's how you know you've been doing this job too long. <laughs> I have a joke, but we don't have evidence that the joke was, really happened. Really happened so. Also, we don't know it's really funny either. Yeah. So is it a joke? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it was never told and no one ever laughed. So we have consciousness. And as far as we know, we've never been able to reproduce consciousness in a computer game. At this point, I want to talk about MMORPGs, which you kind of know, I kind of know. I imagine a lot of our listeners know very well. Okay, but we still need the non-acronym form of this. Massive multiplayer online role-playing game. Okay. So some examples of those are World of Warcraft. Okay. Um, Grand Theft Auto. Yep. Uh, Second Life. Oh, okay, yep, yep. Other ones. Well, would, would Minecraft actually count? Yes. Okay. Minecraft. Great. So I, I know of all of them, have played some of them. Yeah. We were talking uh, before we recorded, and you said you didn't like playing with other people online. You prefer to just play with computer players. Yes. Why is that? Well, because I don't really want to be social in those circumstances. I use video games a lot like I do television or books, which is this is like me time where I retreat from being social and I just sort of like vegetate. I don't like... Uh, being um, accountable to other people in a game. Like, if I disappear for an hour because I'm hungry or tired, I don't want to have to explain that. So anyway, I just like the, the lack of complication that interacting with non-conscious bots allows me. Yeah, NPCs, non-player characters. Okay. So when you're in interacting with a non-player character, do you feel any kind of ethical obligation towards them? Do you feel bad when you step on a Goomba, for example? No. And if anybody's ever played Grand Theft Auto, it'd make it very difficult to play that game if you had ethical compunctions because you have to do horrendous things. I mean, horrendous real-life things, if they were done in real life, uh, in order to do well in that game. Now, the point I'm making with all of this is that it seems very easy for you to tell the difference in a video game between an NPC, uh, a character controlled by a computer program, and a PC, uh, a character controlled by a person. Well, especially because I, I, I choose the setting that's like no real people but me. So that makes it very easy to know that it's I'm very, what kind of world I'm existing in. Very solipsistic. Like a human character, a human player can show initiative and critical thinking, or behave in like weird random ways. Whereas the NPCs are just going to go about their days following their instructions. And the instructions might be really complicated, they might be really nuanced, they might be really impressive, but it's still a fairly easy process, I would say, to interact with a character in a game, and, and you, you sort of interact with them in such a way that you reach the limits of that programming, and their lack of consciousness becomes very apparent. Okay. So, can a computer program ever be conscious? Oh. This, of course, is a question that was raised by the computer scientist Alan Turing back in the 1940s. And Alan Turing is like, you could almost think of him as the founder of computing, of yeah. a computer as such. Certainly one of them. One of them. And that's true. There are, in the history of computing, there's a lot of different people who could claim being the sort of first creator, but he's definitely up there. Oh, yeah, 100%. was also central in code breaking and using a computer uh, for code breaking. An extraordinary mind. And even back then, when computers were the size of rooms and had like vacuum tubes in them and took a long time to do long division, even back then, Turing realized that these were going to get better, they were going to get more complicated, and we were going to get the point 
where somebody was going to ask the question, hey, can this thing think? Right. Is this thing conscious? Conscious in the way that I am conscious. Yeah, self-aware of your awareness. Exactly, because I don't think anybody... I mean, the old-fashioned, like what a computer used to refer to before we had machines was a person who did calculations, long form. And so nobody disputed the fact that computers were able to do sort of... Computations. Computations, mm -hmm. right? That, which is one component of thinking for a human being as well. But the question is, yes, but can we... It can... Even theoretically, a computer be uh, created such that it has self-awareness like I do. Like yeah. knows that it knows. Yeah. And so Turing comes up with a test, a very famous test. It's named after him. The Turing test. Yeah. Do you want to explain how does the Turing test work? Well, I want to give uh, Alan Turing his due. Um, but I got to admit that I feel like the Turing test is a little bit of a cop-out. Because... If you want to know whether a computer is conscious, there's a there's a really problematic term in that question, which is, well, what is consciousness? Mm -hmm. And again, it's it's one of these things that philosophers and maybe psychologists get very excited about. It might not resonate with all of our listeners because again, we have this very first person experience of consciousness. It's it's maybe the thing that is most familiar to me of all my experiences is consciousness itself. And yet when you try and define it, it's almost impossible to do it. It's really, really hard to differentiate consciousness as I experience it and be able to come up with some kind of rubric that I could use to see it in other things. Is my dog conscious? Is that ant conscious? Is Nathan, who is staring at me right now, is he conscious? A little you bit. Know? And so Turing, it's a quite clever move. He's like, look, we might be able to answer this question without having to answer the problem of first of what we mean actually by consciousness and come up with some robust definition of that. And so what he said, and here, even though I suck normally at doing bumper sticker versions, here's a bumper sticker version of Alan Turing's Turing test, which is, if you can't tell the difference, it's conscious. Like, yeah, if, so, if a being appears to be conscious, then we treat them as conscious, and so which is sort of what we do with other humans and yeah. other animals. Yeah. But then also we do it with the weather and our cars when they break down. Yes, although I would say that it actually does work a lot of times when we do it with other humans and animals. Like there are indices that they are in fact conscious. But just again to, to, uh, to finish up with the Turing test. Uh, oh yeah, Turing what is the Turing test? The Turing test is, let's imagine that you have an interaction with... Uh, two different things behind a screen. Uh, so you can't see that one of them is a computer and one of them is a human being. And you can ask them questions. And if you generate a computer such that from the observer's perspective, it is impossible to distinguish the difference between the answers given by a conscious human being and the answers given by a computer, then for all intents and purposes, we need to consider that computer conscious. Yeah, and that's the Turing test. That's the Turing test. I, I sit which, at a keyboard and I type some questions and then something in the next room responds. Exactly. And then if I, you know, interact with this thing for like 10 minutes and at the end of it I think, you know, this thing seemed to be responding to my questions in a very human and thoughtful way, I think that that was a human. Yeah. But it turns out that that was a computer program. Exactly. Then that computer program has passed the Turing test and Turing would argue... Must be a thinking thing. Well, uh, does he argue that? And here we're really splitting hairs. 
or or is the point more that it really doesn't the question is no longer relevant now because we've got something that in all intents and purposes mimics it mm-hmm. and i just want to say that we have arrived at that point my understanding is that some of the um um, what are they called? Telemarketers are actually AIs. Mm-hmm. And you can interact with them and ask them off script questions like, how's the weather? Or, you know, whatever sports team did really poorly last night. And, and they will generate what appear to be spontaneous answers, including stutters and, and kind of pauses and all that kind of stuff. However, if you knew it was a test, if you knew there, there was a possibility that it was an AI... I feel like you could pretty easily, even with a modern conversation chatbot, you could pretty easily, like, trip it up. Well, you because, should... Because we get these all the time, right? When we're trying to complain about, like, uh, airplane tickets or something, and we go into those chat windows, and inevitably oh, yeah. it's like... those bots suck. We are getting closer to the point where something would pass the Turing test. As of 2022, no computer program has passed it in an official competition. But it does sound like maybe we're getting close, and it's certainly conceivable that at some point you'll be chatting with something online and you won't know if right. it's a real human being or if it's an AI. And you'll give yeah. it your credit card because it needs help and it needs to fly out of, right. out of Berlin. <laughs> and, and it sent you its picture and right. you're really attracted to them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They just they need a little bit of help right now. And then they'll come and meet you and then you'll be at the airport waiting with flowers. Right. And then the question is, what gets off the airplane? Human being. Or nothing. And so a couple of just terms that might be useful as we go on. That moment that you're talking about of uh, an AI actually reaching self-awareness is known in the biz as the singularity. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people claim it has already happened. Some people suggest it's just around the corner. And then... And almost everyone suggests that all bets are off as soon as it happens. Right, right, right. That's why it's a singularity. It's like you can't see past it. Right. That happens and does the world become a utopia? Do we get harvested for lubrication? Right. Who knows? Exactly. But let's go back to our main point. So we looked at two pieces of evidence that were in a real world and not a simulation. One, our universe is much, much, much larger than any simulation we've been able to create. Mm. And two, we haven't yet been able to program a computer so that it appears to be a human. But... I mean, then we also said that you could make the argument that both pieces of evidence are based on our current level of technology. Right. And that it's impossible we're a simulation that was either created by more advanced beings than us, some other planet, or perhaps we're living in a simulation of the past that was created by humans in the distant future. Just because we haven't been able to do something yet doesn't mean that it can't be done, but it does mean that we don't have empirical evidence that it can be done yet. Right. So do we know anything at all yet? Not yet, but <laughs> if we're still worried, so I'm not, so actually the reality hypothesis wasn't that convincing. If we're still worried that everything we know might actually be someone else's sandbox computer game, maybe we take comfort in the laws of physics that keep our universe in order. Because unlike a computer simulation in which there's, there's hacks and there's cheat codes that can get the user around the rules of the program, like you can go into God mode right. and then just wipe out the Oompa Loompas? Uh, Goombas. Goombas, thank you. But our universe's laws seem fairly impervious to cheating, because as far as history records at least, nobody's been able to unlock God mode in our world for any length of time. Hmm. Or have they? Well, I mean, is this what the religious traditions suggest their divinities, saviors, angels, stuff like that are? Are these... Are these... Divine 
like users. That's right. Who have unlocked God mode. Yeah. And now we're walking on water and multiplying bread. Or maybe they're even coming in from, they're, they're temporarily visiting from the really real and, you know, are wandering around. But of course, if you're going to go into a computer, I mean, I'll do that. If, if the cheat codes are available, I'll definitely start the game with, with, with the go, God mode. Oh, yeah, 100%. Somebody must have said this before, hmm. that any kind of divine prophet that comes to Earth or Zeus or demigods or any of those, they're just playing the computer game that are just popping in and activating God mode. That's So Achilles, for example, yeah, he put on God mode and then just wreaked some havoc. Yeah, Hercules. Yep, Hercules. That's the only way you can do those labors. He bumped up his strength stat by like right? 20 points. Exactly. And then just lifted stuff around. Okay, interesting. But... Taking solace in physics isn't as good an idea as it might first appear. Because if you stick with Newtonian physics, then you have a nice orderly series of laws that can help you understand most of what we see around us. But Newton's laws were great for describing and predicting phenomena, but they weren't good at explaining those phenomena. Mm. I mean, what's the classic thing that Newton was able to describe and predict, but he couldn't explain at all? What's the classic... Gravity. Yeah, precisely. In fact, it was considered... um a very unconvincing explanation because it seemed a lot like magic. Yeah. Like, wait, I thought science was supposed to provide the mechanisms of operation, and now you're saying some magic happens from over there, which in fact stuff over here, there's like no medium by which it's transmitted. I mean, today we fill in the story a lot, and there's you know, theories of gravitational waves and stuff like this. But for from in Newton's time... It seemed to other scientists like a somewhat dubious explanation. So we had a world of Newtonian physics, which the world was nice and reasonable, but we didn't really understand it. We could just predict it. And then in the 20th century, as we start to understand more about it, we also lose that nice, predictable, reasonable universe. Right. Because, for example, uh, Albert Einstein comes up with general relativity to explain gravity and special relativity to understand time and space. And we've talked about both of those before when we were talking about TikTok time travelers. Right. And there are amazing theories that vastly increase our abilities to grasp and harness the energy of the natural world, but it also makes the natural world this really, really strange place. Yeah. Like Newton describes this very, like a clockwork world. Yes. That's nice. Exactly. And even if that clock is hopelessly complex... It's still a clock in the sense that it's mechanical. You could theoretically understand it. Like, it just gets weirder and weirder. I miss the clock. Yeah, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, Einstein's universe is a place where time is twisted by velocity and wasn't universally shared by all observers. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, space is also warped and twisted by mass. That's strange. Yeah. And as strange as the universe that Einstein put us in was, there was even more bizarre discoveries being made about the tiny but fundamental world of subatomic particles and even more alarming hypotheses being employed to explain them. You had physicists like Niels Bohr. Yeah. And he was developing theories that even Einstein was like, whoa, whoa, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is too far out. And those theories developed into quantum mechanics, which opens up all sorts of strange and disturbing possibilities about the nature of our universe. Right. So I'm going to now go way off my expertise and try to talk about quantum theory. Okay. Everyone buckle up. The experiment that's usually used to explain the weirdness of quantum mechanics is, of course, the double-slit experiment. Okay. In a nutshell, there was a question about whether light was made up of a particle, like tiny little shiny marbles, or if it was an energy wave. 
One way to figure this out was to shine a light on a screen, and in between the light source and the screen, you put up a barrier that light can't go through. And then on that barrier, you cut two long holes, so it sort of looks like you've cut the number 11 into the barrier. Perfect. That's a great explanation for it. Thank you. I worked. Yeah. I was really trying to figure I, out how I to make this make sense. I was struggling as you were talking. I'm like, how am I going to represent this? And then you did it for me. Exactly. It's, yeah. So this, the, the, the numbers represent the slits on the piece of paper. So these two horizontal slits. Yeah. So then you shine the light through the two holes onto the screen on the other side of the barrier. Right. So if light's made up of tiny little particles, then it would be like shooting a tiny little machine gun at the barrier. Most of the bullets would bounce off the barrier, right? but some would pass through the two slits and hit the screen behind. So you'd end up with a pattern on the screen that looked just like the same shape as the two slits. Mm. Like if you were wearing a bulletproof jacket with two slits cut out of it, eventually your torso would be riddled with bullet holes in it, the same shape as the slits in your jacket. Okay. That was a more macabre version. I was thinking of like paint gun or something. So oh, if you nicer. shoot a paint gun, the paint gets through the slits, but the the barrier prevents the paint coming through. And so you basically have like the number eleven painted on the wall behind it, right? That's a real. That's a much nicer example. <laughs> Just because I was the victim in that in that example, I thought maybe I'd rather be shot with a paint gun than, than riddled. <laughs> so if light was a wave, and you did this experiment, then then the wave would instead of just going through the two slits and making a nice number 11 on the other side, the wave would bounce off the barrier and the sides of the slits, and it would create an interference pattern of increased and decreased intensity. Instead of little tiny machine gun bullets, it would be like watching ripples of water on the surface of a pond making little waves, and those little waves bump into each other and interfere okay. with each other. So they shone the light through the slits, and it made the interference pattern. Rather okay. than the number 11, it was kind of like an interference mess. Okay. So it looked like light uh, was made up of particles. We figured this out. They're called photons. But they're so tiny and there's so many of them that they act like a wave when they're all together, like how water molecules act like a wave. Okay. It's fine. fine. None of this shakes the foundations no. of our uh, understanding of existence. Sounds very Newtonian. Yeah. But, oh. oh boy. So the problem came when individual photons of light were shot one at a time at the screen. See, now the experimenters really were treating the light like a tiny little machine gun, the individual photons were firing one at a time, and so they couldn't interfere with each other in a wave when they're being fired like that. Okay. So the light should have hit the screen in the same pattern as the double slits in the barrier. Mm -hmm. So what we should have seen is now we should see the 11s. Okay. What we first got was the wave interference pattern. Yeah. When we shot them one at a time, we're still getting the wave interference pattern. Okay. That doesn't make any sense. And since it didn't make any sense, the experimenter set up a device that measured when a photon went through one of the slits. Okay. Because they're like, how can they be? How can an individual photon interfere with itself? Right. So they set up a little recording device, and now they run the experiment again. The only thing different is now they're paying attention to what the photons are doing, and this time when they do it, what pattern do they get on the screen? They get the 11s. Now they get the 11s. As though light behaves like a particle. Yeah. And they're like, what? So then they turn the measuring device off and they get the interference pattern again. And then they turn the recording device on and they get the 11s again. It appeared as though the photons were behaving as though they didn't really physically exist except as a probability wave. Mm. It would be like you're sitting in a chair right now. I am. And the chair is solid. Yep. So imagine instead of the chair being in a place at a time like a proper bit of matter should, 
Imagine the chair existed as a probability wave. That would mean that the chair was densest where it normally is. Mm. Because it's normally there by the shrimp tank. Okay. So there'd be like a dense bit of chairness there. Hmm. But sometimes the chair has other parts in the room. Right. And so there'd be sort of like shadows of chairs all over the room. Right. And also outside, because maybe in it's possible that somebody spills something on it and I throw out that chair. Exactly. And so it isn't even in the room. It's mostly and, where it's normally is, but it's it's everywhere else in the room at once. And this is why quantum mechanics is so difficult is because I, it doesn't match with experience of the physical world the way I normally encounter objects. Objects are solid things in one place at one time, and then they could be at some other place at some other time, but they can't be in multiple places at one time. Yeah. Or in multiple times. I don't know. Yeah, like, I mean, if, if just, this experiment makes no sense, it's partially because quantum mechanics, as you say, makes no sense from the perspective of the way we normally think about the world. Yeah. And also because I'm not a physicist. Well, I, I mean, I just have to take their word for it. Physicists who, who have where I've listened to lectures and they've taught this stuff say things like, yeah, it doesn't make sense to us either. Like yeah. we don't understand it. We have the math. But the math works. The math works. And the observations it, that we make fit in with this hypothesis. And and you might think that this kind of physics is so abstract that you can't use it, but apparently a lot of modern technology is predicated on these theories being correct. Like all, all um, of it. Like all of our screen televisions. Yeah, anything with lasers. Yeah, would not work if these theories um, weren't robust in the way that they are. So again, to, to like really hammer down on what this experiment appears to be saying, if you try to observe and measure photons, you force them into existence. And they are, and they, you, Which then, doesn't make sense. And then they have to occupy a specific like it, point it in time space. It matters whether I'm looking at them or not. Yeah. It's like, imagine, conscious. imagine every time you walked into the bunker and turn on the lights, the chair, instead of existing everywhere in the bunker that probability wave collapsed and the, the chair was forced to appear at a solid object. Right. But unless somebody was paying attention to it, it was just free to kind of exist as a probability wave in the room. What does this all mean? Yeah. The yeah findings... How does this tell us anything about the nature of whether we're living in a simulation or not? Well, I'm okay. So these findings have been repeated many times over the last century. Same results, several interpretations. Some argue that subatomic particles exist only as probability waves when unobserved. And then observation or measurement causes the probability wave to collapse into a particle. Another hypothesis is the many worlds interpretation, which argues that every possible quantum possibility creates an entirely different universe. And rather than a single bubble of a universe, we're in a massive sea of foam bubble universes. Okay. Einstein refused to accept the more far out explanations. And he just said, you know, quantum mechanics does an excellent like the, it's got an excellent track record as a theory of making predictions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what reality is actually like. Which is an important distinction to make in the history and philosophy of science, that what is it that science is actually doing? Naively, non-scientists, and actually a lot of scientists themselves will say, we're trying to describe reality as it is. But there is another a tradition within science which says science is science if it describes reality well enough to manipulate it yeah. at the level at which your tech is so newtonian science has been if you if if you take this kind of uh, truth idea of science has been fundamentally refuted as a true version of reality but 
that doesn't really matter because it works in a lot of situations. You can still send somebody to the moon and back using just Newtonian physics. Yeah, even um, though it isn't accurate, it does work. And so Einstein's like, that's what quantum mechanics is like. Right. It's super accurate. It's a great tool to manipulate the world, but not necessarily description of the really real. Although I will say that after Einstein said that, there have been all sorts of tests to try to establish whether quantum mechanics is actually an accurate representation of reality. And so far, the evidence is leaning towards it being, no, this is what actually what the universe is like. But assuming that it is right, assuming that quantum mechanics does actually represent the nature of what our world is like, as weird as it is, I would like to now make a wild and totally uneducated speculation that I think is going to make the ears of our physicist listeners bleed a little. <laughs> so, sorry, Leo. Sorry, Shelley. You have a third interpretation, right? You have the, there's a third version here to the slit experiment. What if the reason that subatomic particles behave this way is because it would require less computing power to do it like that? Rather than having to keep track of every single quark and photon in the universe, the computer running the simulation that we're in could use probability to determine like about where all of the subatomic particles would be. To the casual observer inside the simulation, you'd never know the programmers had gotten lazy. But anytime you tried to peek behind the curtain at the true nature of your universe, there was a safeguard in place to ensure that the subatomic particles would behave properly and occupy specific places in space-time like a dignified bit of matter should. Interesting. So this is your theory here. No, I'm that, not taking... Is, I'm no, no, this is Nathan Radke's this. theory of yes. reality. Mm-hmm. You heard it here first on the Uncover-Up that uh, evidence that we are living in a unreal universe is the double-slit experiment. It shows lazy programmers. It's lazy programming. Um, okay, so now, so now we've arrived finally okay. at the hypothesis that we're going to contrast with the reality hypothesis, the simulation within a reality hypothesis. So some of the things that exist within our universe are computer simulations. Back in the 1980s, I played a computer game on the Commodore 64. Wow. Awesome, awesome machine. And this game was called Ultima 4. And it blew my mind when I was 10. You had this entire world to walk around in. You could go into towns and talk to other characters. There was even a rudimentary ethical system whereby to do well in the game, you had, or your character had, to behave according to a virtue system. Okay. Of course, the conversations you had with the computer-controlled characters were just rudimentary conversation trees. Right. You would type in a few keywords like name and job, and the other character would come back with pre-programmed responses. And if you typed in the word name a hundred times, that character would say the same thing a hundred times. But compared to something like Space Invaders or Pac-Man... Oh, that's that's leagues away. Still blew my mind. Yeah. Now, fast forward 40 years, because we're old... And the level of immersion in virtual worlds has increased exponentially because of the massive improvement in computing power that's available. A modern 2022 computer has one million times the memory capacity of that Commodore 64. Wow. A million times. And the modern CPU would be about 150,000 times more powerful. Hmm. So compared to my little blocky 8-bit Ultima 4 character walking around its tiny little world, like now we've created some pretty rich and complex simulated worlds. So then can we assume that if we continue making advancements in computer speed and processing power, then the video game simulations 40 years from now will be similarly more impressive than the ones that we have today? Yeah. I mean, I think that we have to assume that whoever is making the simulation is way beyond 
what we can currently do in terms of technology and understanding. And I think that is the assumption that we're going to get to is that one of the options might be future humans. And so, yeah, their tech is going to be way advanced. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, are we ever going to be able to come up with a simulation that's identical to the real universe, both in quantity and in quality? We haven't been able to do it so far, but there's something that we need to take into account when we're discussing things that are extremely unlikely. Mm. Like this is a very unlikely thing that we would ever be able to build a simulated universe, like almost impossible, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. But there's always something we need to take into account when we're talking about the almost impossible and that is the scope of the universe. I mean, we do something similar when we try to decide if there's life on other planets, right? We say it's really unlikely that a planet has life on it. Yeah. But... But then the universe is very big, and so then the numbers actually end up being probably more likely that there is life in other places. Even if you're, you say, you know, life is a one in a trillion chance or something. Well, you gave the numbers earlier for the amount of um, solar systems... And uh, 200 billion galaxies, 100 billion stars each. Yeah. So that's a lot of numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's like winning the lottery, but that's a lot of lottery tickets. So weirdly, one of the same reasons that it's unlikely we live in a simulation, which is the massive size of the universe, is also the main reason why some philosophers argue that it's likely that we do live in Mm. a simulation. Okay. So now we'll get to the, the actual argument. This is a guy called Nick Bostrom. In 2003, he publishes a paper titled, Are You Living in a Simulation? Here's his main argument. He said, one of the following statements must be true. One, that no civilization in the universe will ever get to the point where they have the capacity to generate a simulated universe. Or, two, no civilization in the universe will be interested in creating a simulated universe. Or, three, we are in a simulated universe. So because he argues one of those three things must be true, if the first one isn't true and the second one isn't true, he mm-hmm. argues that the third one must be true. So here's why. All right. I'm skeptical. <laughs> Lee is, he is leaning back. He is furrowing his brow. So when we're dealing with an area as vast as the universe, it's kind of sticky to assume that unlikely things won't happen. We've already seen that. It's unlikely that life shows up in a solar system, but here we are in a solar system with life. And of those millions of times that life has occurred, which is statistically likely because of the size of the universe, we've seen on our own planet that it's possible for a technological civilization to emerge. Right. And so it isn't even a question of how many of those civilizations exist right now, but how many of them will ever have existed or ever will exist. So added to the immensity of space is the immensity of time. And that makes it more difficult to accept either of those first two statements, either that no civilization has ever or will ever occur that has this power, or that no civilization will want this power. Because we're dealing with so much time and so much space, chances are it's going to happen. Okay. So it's a statistical argument. It's based on probability. One which says that because everything is so big and so old, even extremely unlikely things start to become more and more likely. And so it's not a proof, but his position, I'm guessing, he's going to come down on the third alternative, which is that, yeah, we are the product of another civilization's simulation. Yeah. So what say we accept, okay, so some civilization somewhere in the future or the past or in the universe 
creates a simulated universe, why does that mean that we're in it? Because let's say there is one, they've created a copy of the universe. That means that there is X amount of beings living in the real universe, X being some giant number. Mm -hmm. And because the simulation was a copy, there's also X amount of beings living, quote unquote, in the simulated universe. Mm. X is the same amount. So if we accept these premises, that gives us a 50-50 shot of being in the real universe. Why 50-50? I feel like if it there is, would if be there is, much more likely we'd be in a simulation because there's more, in, more people in the simulation than out. Well, I mean, if it's a direct copy, there's okay. X amount okay. in the real world and X amount, the same amount, in the perfect simulation okay, copy. Fine. So then there's a 50-50 shot. Except, of course, if the simulated universe is a direct copy then one of the things that would contain in it is the scientist who created a simulated universe. Okay. So that simulated universe has a simulated universe. Oh, no. Oh, no, is right. So now there's two simulated universes, the simulated one and the one that the simulated universe simulated. So now we've got one universe full of real beings with X humans in it, or X beings in it, and two universes filled with simulated beings. So now the chances that we're real beings are X over 2X, or about 33%. But that simulated, simulated universe, what does it have in it? Yeah, yeah. I see where this is going. This is caves all the way down, isn't it's it? caves all the way down. Uh, that simulated, simulated universe has a civilization in it that has simulated the universe. So now it's X over 3X, and it goes on and on and on. Each simulated universe in turn simulating its own universe. So actually the odds would be like X over infinity X. And at that point, our chances of being real are approximately 0%. Right, 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 right. Okay. I don't like it. I don't buy it particularly. Although I have to admit that I don't have any better reasons for it than the author of this article. And so what's interesting is you can make a very convincing statistical argument when you don't have enough data to support either case. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to ask a different question. We're going to move from epistemology. We're going to move away from metaphysics. And we're going to move into ethics. No. Yes. We are not. No, Nathan we are. thinks we are, but no, and this we are. is not and an ethical why. question. It is an ethical question. It is not. <laughs> My question is this. Does it matter if this universe is a computer simulation? Right. So this is my moment to shine uh, on today's narrative. Here he goes. Here we go. Here we my go. eyes are <laughs> shining so bright. This question is, is, we're going back to some European philosophy, and this question is really addressed in what you could imagine as a conversation between two great luminaries of the German philosophical tradition. They didn't meet each other, but uh, one followed the other shortly in time, and so you can imagine them sort of having, a, or at least one having a dialogue with his predecessor. First guy is Immanuel Kant, who has a, a very robust ethical system. He has a very robust um, epistemological system. And uh, part of his epistemology, or central tenet of his epistemology, is that the world is divided up into the appearance of things. That is the uh, phenomenal world. That's the stuff that we see, including what science uncovers that isn't immediately apparent to me. And then there's the world beyond all the senses and whatever. And that world, he posits, exists, but is unknowable, fundamentally. The, the noumenal unknown. world. It's the noumenal, and you just can't get there. It is there, but it's stuff like uh, what is 
space in the absence of time? Or what is space in the absence of dimension? And he's like, you know, we have a brain that is configured in such a way that the world makes sense to us. Um, we think that's real, but the really real is beyond our brain's ability to manage. And whatever that is going on out there, it just, we don't know. So that's Kant. And then Hegel comes along and says, essentially, I mean, he said a lot of things, a lot of other things. But one of the key points that I took away from his philosophy was basically saying to Kant, well, look, if there is this thing, this noumenal world, that's out there that you can't get to, that doesn't really affect you, the blah, 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 blah. You can almost imagine it like a universe outside of our universe, like an actual universe. Well, okay, if it doesn't interact with our universe, if we can't get to it, well, that's equivalent to saying it doesn't exist. I mean, it essentially means the same thing. So Hegel says, so who cares about the noumenal? Like, why doesn't matter. If we exist in the phenomenal, uh, the phenomenal is what is real. Yeah. And I think there's this question about the notion of a holographic universe or simulation universe, where um, if it's a kind of idea, there's a brain in a vat or a matrix kind of thing, that there's an outside me. There's another me out there that's dreaming this or having this hallucination piped through my consciousness. Then there is a place to go back to. But Hegel's, and that would almost be Kant's position, except he's saying, yeah, but you can't go back. And then Hegel is like, well, his position is more like, okay, let's imagine we are conscious computer programs within a computer, and there is no outside for us. Then this is reality. This is what we mean. But whatever that is, this is what we mean by reality. And I put it to you like this, where let's say I could prove to you just absolutely prove that in fact we are sentient computer programs in a simulated reality. Is that really going to change how you operate tomorrow morning? Are you not going to go to work? Are you not going to take care of your kids? Are you not going to shop for food or play a video game or meet your partner or whatever? No, of course not. You know, because it doesn't actually matter. These kinds of ideas are fun things to speculate about. But if we take the idea really seriously, I'd have to say me being a computer, a sentient computer program within this simulation matters to me as much as me being me in a physical reality where I'm bumping against things. And yeah. it's functionally indistinguishable. Yeah. Now, uh, for whatever bizarre reason, Nathan thinks this is an ethical position. Well, because I it is, because you're talking about what you should do. And no. if you're talking about what you should do and how you should react to things... I'm talking about how we don't care. Do me a favor. <laughs> I want you to I want you to slap yourself in the face really hard right now. No. Yeah, okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Did that hurt? Yes. Yes. Okay, so then it doesn't... Then, then it doesn't it, matter. Then it doesn't matter. Because... Right? Pain, the experience of pain, if we're computer simulations, but we can experience pain, other people can also experience pain, then the pain is real. The happiness is real. Yeah. All of these things, it doesn't matter what underpins them. The experience of them is real. So therefore, even if this is a computer simulation, then like we should still behave in a way that tries to reduce the pain of, of the other simulated characters 
and increase the happiness of the other simulated characters, because what else is there? Yeah, and I'm still going to try and, and live a good life, whatever that might mean. Oh, well, it's a good life. Yeah. That sounds very ethical to it, me. It does sound ethical, but it's because I'm in the real, which is ontology.